Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. The life of Abraham Lincoln coincided with dramatic societal transformations that shaped the future of the United States. In the center of these developments stood the question whether the nation could continue to grow with the system of slavery or not. Inherently linked to an issue that almost dissolved the nation was the problem of racism and the future of race relations after emancipation. To examine Lincoln's attitudes on slavery and race opens a window for us to look at his own struggles concerning these issues, but at the same time at the political and cultural contentions at large of a nation that he helped to save as president during the American Civil War. James S. Humphreys is a professor of history at Murray State University in Murray, Kentucky, where he specializes in the history of the American South. Humphreys completed a Ph.D. in history in 2005 at Mississippi State University. He has been at Murray State University in Kentucky for 11 years. Dr. Humphreys addresses Lincoln, race, and emancipation with us today on Think Humanities. Dr. Humphreys, your research has led you to um, a, a President Lincoln who is maybe in some ways far more interesting, more a nuanced, if you will, and more human than the romanticized version of Lincoln as the great emancipator. Could you tell us why? Well, I, you know, I, I think that's right. I think the uh, if you get closer to the truth about Lincoln, it's more uh, interesting and fascinating than the sort of ro- the romantic uh, view of Lincoln. Uh, some say that Lincoln, you know, was the great emancipator, that he dedicated his life to helping African-Americans and ending slavery. Um, but actually, you know, the end, the end of slavery came through the Emancipation Proclamation and then the 13th Amendment, two things that he favored, obviously. Um, but the Emancipation Proclamation was issued to really strengthen his army's chances of winning the war. Um, and so even though he denounced slavery, he certainly didn't like it. He thought it was a bad he thought it was a bad uh, uh, economic system and that it was bad for whites and blacks. He believed in gradual emancipation and even compensated emancipation, paying slaveholders for their losses. And many times he said that he advocated colonization, removing blacks from the United States. He said one, he said once that the country really was for, for one group, meaning whites and not blacks. Um, and throughout his career, as I said, he favored compensated gradual emancipation. But that doesn't take away from the fact that he denounced it and, and said that if slavery is not wrong, then, then nothing is wrong. And so uh, it was really the events of the war that pushed him to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, had the war gone better, he, uh, there, you know, there, there, wouldn't, there wouldn't have been an Emancipation Proclamation. Um, he wanted to defeat the Confederate armies as quickly as possible and bring the um, Confederacy back into its proper place in the Union. He said the Confederates had never left, that there was no right to secession. But he did say they were out of their proper place. And he wanted to bring them back in their proper place with slavery intact. Um, but by the spring of 62, his armies were really performing poorly in the Eastern Theater, even though out here in the West they were doing a lot better. And he thought that he was losing. Um, and this this is really what, what pushed him 
But that doesn't take away from the fact that he was still far ahead of many Americans on race and slavery. Well, you um, you, you talk about uh, the myths and half-truths that uh, maybe we uh, adopted uh, without the research and, and the, uh, the work you've done on uh, the president. Um, let me just ask you a follow-up question on the Confederacy. Where, where did he think or how did he define the proper place for the Confederacy? Uh, you mean being out, out of their, I mean, uh, out of their proper place? or Out of their proper place or bringing them back into? Well, Link, Lincoln's theory of union was that uh, uh, national government was supreme over the states. Um, the states could not renege on their um, constitutional duties to the federal government. And, of course, that was a dispute before the Civil War about which one was stronger. Um, and uh, he um, did not recognize the right of secession. He never recognized the Confederate government. He would, in his official communications, he would say, like, the so-called Confederate government, the so-called Confederate president. He argued that those states were not out of the Union, but they were out of their proper place. I don't really know if he defined exactly what that was, but um, and that um, that he was still the president and that secession was illegal. Um, and this is why at the end of the war, you have um, battlefield commanders negotiating peace terms, because had civil officials negotiated them, it would have uh, it would have granted legitimacy to the Confederacy which is not what he wanted to do. Under international law, when he declared like a blockade, I think under international law, they, they were considered, uh, they were given like belligerent status. But um, his theory of union just said that secession was illegal. Um, and that he tried, as soon as the first shots are fired, reconstruction begins. He wants to bring these states back into the union. And he tried several different methods during the war to try to, to, try to do that. Give us, if you will, um, a, a timeline and of his thinking and when he began to, if um, if he did this, uh, change his thinking, um, and uh, the the date of the Emancipation Proclamation and how uh, I believe you stated and and we know now that it was more about about the war than it was really about freedom. Well, yes, it was issued on January 1, 1863, and earlier on September 22nd, after the Battle of Antietam of 62, he issued a preliminary emancipation proclamation. And in the preliminary one, um, he wrote that he would work toward a compensated emancipation plan and colonization. And he also developed this scheme where the states could keep slavery up to 1900. He even calculated how many people we'd have in 1900 population. He said we'd have about 103 million. So I think he was pretty close. Mm. But he was trying to show that we would have more people, more taxpayers, that the country could absorb paying for this compensation. Um, compensation never worked. He, the, he hoped the border states would accept it during the war, like Kentucky, Maryland, Delaware, Missouri. But they rejected it. So in the <clears throat> and it, it would cost a lot. But he said, isn't this war costing a lot? in terms of money and lives. So he's really doing everything he can to undermine the Confederacy, everything he can to bring them back, and everything he can to sort of show that I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not a staunch abolitionist who wants to end slavery immediately. But in that preliminary proclamation, he does write that, uh, you know, 90 days from now, 
there's going to be an emancipation proclamation without these qualifications like compensation. So he's sort of holding out the carrot and then there's a stick. <laughs> so, um, uh, and, um, uh, and his, you know, his thinking was, his thinking toward the war was changing. He said, we must free the slaves or be ourselves subdued in giving freedom to the slave. We ensure freedom to the free. Um, but he, but like, a, like I say, he, he, he still felt a burden for blacks. It's not, not that he, and he's still far ahead of many Americans. How long did it take him to get to that point and those statements? Uh, what is, uh, let's go back even, um, okay. into his past and, and, uh, maybe not all the way through his growing up, but, uh, when did he begin to adopt these, these, these feelings, um, and 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 really, some people might ask, why did it take him so long? Well, that's right. Um, well, in, you know, in, eight, in 1836, he uh, got his law license to study in all Illinois courts. And he went on to serve two terms in the Illinois legislature and then um, one term in the House of Representatives. That's all he that's all he had before he became president. <laughs> two terms in the Illinois state legislature and then one term in the House. And I think from the beginning of his career that he was uh, he was fairly consistent with those ideas that he finally dispensed with in 1862, 63. Um, you know, he said he could accept that whites were superior to blacks, but not in the right to enjoy the fruits of their labor. Um, and um, he, as I said, denounced was announcing slavery from the stump pretty early. But some people have pointed out he had his own racism. You know, he, as I said, he said he felt whites were superior to blacks. He used the N-word sometimes. He told some racist, racist jokes. But he was pretty consistent throughout most of his, uh, throughout most of his political career. And then uh, that changed as, uh, uh, you know, as because of the events of the war. Also, there were things like, uh, well, John Brown's raid at Harper's Ferry, 1859. There was uh, the uh, uh, Dred Scott case which really motivated Lincoln and the Republicans who wanted to stop the spread of slavery, really motivated them into, into action. Um, the Republicans wanted to stop the spread of slavery. They thought it was a bad economic system. Some were really concerned about blacks. Others thought it was just terrible for the United States to practice this institution. And I think Lincoln felt all of those, all of those things. Dr. Humphreys, uh, what, what sort of support uh, did he have among personal friends, among uh, his wife, Nancy, uh, and among, among his cabinet? Uh, for emancipation? Yes. Um, well, his, his uh, wife, uh, you've seen, I guess, the Todd House there. In Lexington. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a good biography of her. And biographer writes that his, his wife, you know, gave him, gave him strong support for the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, even though she grew up in this family and she had, like, brothers fighting for the Confederacy, she supported him strongly from what this biographer says is, you know, so, and uh, she, uh, um, you know, really disliked it. Well, obviously wants a union to win the war. So um, she got, uh, she gave him a lot of support when it came to emancipation, I think. You know, among the cabinet, um, gosh, that's one. Well, he, Lincoln, didn't, he didn't have a lot of support. Yeah. Yeah, Lincoln. Yeah, Lincoln would listen to what people said, but ultimately, you know, he made the he made the decisions. Um, I'm sure there was debate over that. I'm I'm not that good with that with that question, though. So. What did he? 
What did he get wrong or what advice was he given in the early phases of the war that um, that he knew later on were mistakes and that he had to do something um, about making progress? Uh, well, it's, you know, he, wa- he wanted a limited war when it began. He didn't want this thing to spin out of control and turn into what he called a remorseless revolutionary struggle, which is what it became. In the- <laughs> um, and I think that ultimately he saw, well, at the beginning of the war, he based a lot of his reconstruction plans on Southern Unionism. He thought that most whites were still loyal. He believed that the fire eaters who'd been preaching secession had, quote, debau- as he said, debauched the public mind, had led people astray. And that when his armies invaded, that most whites would support, you know, a return to the old flag. So he over and, and there was quite a bit of unionism in the South, but he overestimated that. I think I think he would say that that was a mistake. He had over overestimated it. About 100,000 white Southerners fought for the union, but still. I think that would that, that that's where he would say that was a mistake, that he overestimated that, and he and he uh, if you took uh, if you're white Southern you take an oath of allegiance to the United States, then his armies were supposed to leave you alone. You're a U.S. citizen, even your slaves. Um, I think he'd probably say by '62, '63. I think he was realizing what what Stephen Ash, a historian, called the Rosewater policy: treat these Southern unionists nicely. Some of them were actually loyal, amazingly, <laughs> but. Um, I think uh, I think he would have said I, I stayed too long with that rosewater policy, mm. and emancipation was turning up the heat, you know, and they realized it was going to be a longer, tougher war than they thought. So I think uh, underestimating how bad this was going to become, but but who could have figured that out? And I think the the staying with this idea of Southern Unionism, I think he would have said he stayed too long. What what do you when you use the term Southern Unionism? What give give me a good solid definition of that? Well, sometimes sometimes it was fluid, but there were some white Southerners who who never supported the um, Confederacy. You know, there was one prominent South Carolinian who said uh, he was a Unionist. He said South Carolina, what was it? Um, uh, too um, too small for a republic, too large for an insane asylum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, so there were some, there were some, you know, who uh, um, opposed, well, opposed the Confederacy from the beginning, um, and uh, you know, especially in the in the Upper South, like here in Kentucky, you have you know some Unionists, and then in the Mountain South, you have some poor whites. There aren't as many slaves there, and they don't want to fight the rich man's war and the poor man's fight. Um, and but then you'd have some who would give up on the Confederacy and believe that the Confederate government had become tyrannical. Um, and then some after the war, like James Longstreet, Lee, one of Lee's most trusted officers, joined the Republican Party, you know, which was hated in the South before the war. So it, uh, unionism was kind of a, a fluid thing. Um, and like I say, Lincoln probably stayed, he overestimated that and probably stayed too long with it um, because eventually uh, they just came around to they, they've got to feel the hard hand of war. Tell us how he got to the point of um, of deciding on the uh, ratification of the constitutional amendment to to end slavery. Well, you know, he knew, and other people knew that the Emancipation Proclamation was not um, it was not a permanent end, end to slavery. Uh, he himself could have rescinded it, and he didn't really think he was going to be reelected. 
so what is the next president going to do with it? Who would probably be George McClellan, who was more conservative than Lincoln on race. Um, uh, and so, um, but, but he was reelected and Lincoln realized that an amendment could be a permanent end to the institution of slavery. And I shouldn't mention for your listeners, you know, that the Emancipation Proclamation didn't apply to Kentucky, Missouri, Delaware, Maryland. These were border states that never left the Union but practiced slavery because he didn't want to offend those slaveholders. You remember his famous phrase, I need God on my side, by God, I need Kentucky. And people criticized Lincoln with the Emancipation Proclamation saying, you're freeing them where you can't reach them and you're not freeing them where you can. But when you look at the overall strategy of the war without Kentucky and then Maryland and Missouri, if they had gone, it would have been very hard to win the war. So he was very good with overall, uh, overall strategy. And he said, what I do about the black race, I do to save the union. And I would do whatever I have to do, you know, keeping them in chains, not keeping them in chains. Uh, what I do is to save the union. Um, but now I've kind of forgotten your original question. Well, I do know that's, that's really interesting. And I, I, I want to follow up on that too, but, and let me just do that now while we're talking about Kentucky. So the, his decision to, uh, not include Kentucky, Missouri, uh, the other states, um, was not met, uh, by what faction, uh, did, did he have support in that too? Or was that something that he, he did on his own? Well, you know, the staunch abolitionists, those who wanted an immediate end to slavery, Frederick Douglass and Charles Sumner and like Wendell Phillips in Massachusetts, they were always pressing Lincoln. Douglass said, you're fighting the rebels with one arm tied behind your back. And so I'm sure they weren't, you know, they, they, they weren't that uh, pleased. And actually, uh, the, the Emancipation Proclamation drew a lot of criticism. A London newspaper portrayed Lincoln as playing cards with Jeff Davis, and he was out of cards, and his last card had a black face on it. Lincoln was pointed to the table looking frustrated. He was accused by the Confederates of trying to start a race war in the South. Um, there were, uh, there were uh, according to Michael Ballard, a good historian, there were desertions increased after the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, and as far, you know, as far as Kentucky, he couldn't lose, he really couldn't lose Kentucky. He said to lose Kentucky is to lose the whole game. How do you invade Tennessee and the Deep South without Kentucky? Um, and you would, uh, you know, you would lose a large source of men, horses, and you would lose Henry Clay's home state, his home state. But strategically, Kentucky, where if you look at where it sits, sort of between north and south, was, he saw that it was absolutely vital. If he lost Maryland, then, uh, you know, the, the, the capital's virtually in rebel territory. And then, uh, then as I said, you have all that, uh, all those men. And, and strategically, he had to have Kentucky, and he knew that. So his strategic thinking was often better than his officers and better than those people criticizing him from both sides. And he got a lot. Of, he got an avalanche of criticism in the North. Did, did he get uh, what, what kind of support? How strong was his support in Kentucky for this decision? Oh, in Kentucky for the Emancipation Proclamation, it, it wasn't it wasn't strong. Um, and uh, um, I think Lincoln knew there that. There'd be big problems with slaveholders had he applied it to Kentucky. Uh, there's even a statue. I've, I've forgotten the man's name, but there's a statue in Kentucky of one Kentuckian who he was a unionist, but he was one who blasted Lincoln. <laughs> there are only a few union statues in Kentucky. Yeah, Ann Marshall's written a book, good book, con Creating a Confederate Kentucky. It's about how Kentucky becomes more Confederate after the war. She'd be a good one to have on your show. 
Yeah. She and what's that name again? Name is Ann Marshall. Yes. She teaches down at Mississippi State. Yes, yes. Yeah. And I, I, I now I'm familiar with her um, um, and know about that. But that's and, and because she's not here with us today. Uh, <laughs> Tell me, uh, that that's such an interesting uh, phrase in the way you put that, that, that Kentucky became more uh, like the Confederacy after the Civil War. Yeah, that's, well, you know, Anne was kind of building on an idea that's been around for a while where there were some Southern uh, historians, like a guy I wrote about, Francis Butler Simpkins, who wrote that the, that the South became actually more Confederate after it was over. And as far as Kentucky's concerned, um, you know, it's some people will be surprised to learn that Kentucky didn't leave the Union. You know, if they really had studied it all that much because it seems so Southern. And she sort of argues that some of these things were creations that occurred after the war. I think the movement toward racial equality with the 14th Amendment, voting rights with the 15th Amendment, more rights for women, just this vast cultural changes that were sweeping over the nation. And then the difficulties of Reconstruction. Then also there's some of the depredations committed by Union troops in Kentucky. I think all, all of that sort of pushed uh, increased racism in Kentucky, where racism was already strong, unfortunately, and made and sort of stoked this kind of anti-union feeling af- after it was over. So the uh, the original question was really, and you, you've you've addressed it, but but if you'll just elaborate on on when when he got when did he get to the point of deciding that that the, 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 that it needed uh, ratification, that the amendment needed yeah. to be done? Yeah, the 13th Amendment. Well, he's issued the Emancipation Proclamation, and then after that, he knows that, um, that that's not a permanent end, and he doesn't know what's going to happen. He really thinks McClellan will be the next president, um, and um, McClellan just might have rescinded, rescinded it. Um, and an amendment had not been passed it was finally passed in 1865, unfortunately, after Lincoln died. He did get to see the ratification. I'm sorry, the passage through the House and Senate, but he didn't right. get to see the ratification. Uh, December of 1865. Uh, an amendment had not been passed for over 60 years. Hmm. And um, then we're going to have three, 13, 14, 15, and five years. And so after he issued that, he begins to talk with his Republican colleagues um, and a lot of the Democrats were opposed. He finally got 17 in the House to vote for it. He talks to his Republican colleagues, and you know they agree that the a permanent end could come through uh, a uh, an amendment. And he worked very hard because you got to get two thirds vote in both houses, and that was tough. Even after all of this killing, can you believe that? That was tough to do. All the Republicans voted for it, but he had to get the Democrats to come along, and that's what that movie Lincoln is about. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And um, uh, and then it was finally ratified in December of 1865. What was the language in the Emancipation Proclamation that that Lincoln and, and others did not feel was was strong enough? I, I don't I don't have the proclamation in front of me or I would. But what what did it say that led to the uh, to the passage of the 13th Amendment? Why was it not good enough? Yeah. Well, it. Um, well, he issued, he issued it under his powers as commander in chief. He said, this is what he says in the first couple lines, you know, under my powers as commander in chief, I issue this as a, as a war measure, as a war measure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not an amendment. It's not a law passed by Congress. And as we said, it exempted, it exempted the border states. And also there were parts of states where, where his army had invaded 
And they also exempted parts of these rebel states too, parts of them. And so it just simply wasn't, it wasn't comprehensive. And as I pointed out, it could be rescinded by him or by a future, a future president. And the 13th Amendment was, an amendment is the closest thing we have to permanent provision in our law. It can only be repealed by another amendment being passed in the future to repeal it. Dr. Humphreys, um, this uh, is, is such a, a broad, general statement and, and consensus, but we hear it today because it is still in our in our debate, in our language, in our politics, that we in some ways have never gotten over the Civil War, that we're still fighting the Civil War, that there is still a struggle out there. People are familiar with with the conversation. Yeah. Well, what's your opinion? Uh, well, let's see. I th- the you know, the war still influences us, still influences us today. Um, you know, you can see it in, you know, in voting patterns and you can, you can see it in our uh, politics. Uh, we, we study it a lot for sure. I guess, you know, we're, we're fighting it in the sense that we still study it, think about it. We still see it as a, the most important line of demarcation in our history. Um, and it, and it definitely affects affects us politically, economically in different ways. But I don't, but I don't, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, as far as a lot of the bitterness, you know, I, don't, I think most of that's gone. I, I, I hope so. <laughs> um, so I don't, I don't, I wouldn't really say that we're fighting it. We're still dealing with the issues from it, the fallout from it. But in terms of history, I guess it hasn't been that long ago. We, uh, in fighting, you know, we argue over the interpretations. But I don't know. As far as uh, uh, thankfully, most I think most of the bitterness is gone. Dr. Humphreys is a history professor at Murray State University. His uh, conversation, his uh, his talk, uh, which he would love to do all over the state of Kentucky, I think, uh, is uh, titled "Lincoln, Race, and Emancipation." Dr. Humphreys, uh, it's been such a a pleasure to have you on Think Humanities, and and uh, quite an interesting uh, conversation. We will have to have you back again. All right. Do you have any time to say one more thing, maybe? Yes, sir, please. All right. Uh, well, you know, uh, Lincoln was pushed to issue this to the events of the war, but he personally was liberated by it. I think this was also a very personal thing for him. And um, he began to praise the work of Union soldiers. He began to drop the stuff about colonization. He said, we can't go back on this proclamation. Promises made or promises kept. So Lincoln was, I don't, I don't know if he's transformed, but Lincoln moved. He, he moved. He grew. Uh, on this issue of race, um, and even said that the Union might not have won without the work of black troops. He became much more appreciative, and racism declined in the North because people saw 40,000 blacks die, over 200,000 served, and Lincoln was just deeply appreciative of that, and I think he began to develop a real personal sympathy for them, and that's kind of the end of this better story. <laughs> and, and don't you also uh, say that, that Lincoln felt like that without uh, African-Americans, the war might not have been successful? That, that's right. That's what Lincoln said. That's what Lincoln said. And uh, in one of his last political speeches, he gave it to a man to read at Springfield, uh, Illinois, because he couldn't make it. And that, that's what he said. He said, uh, you know, some whites only wanted to reunite the union, but he said, blacks will fight for you, your goals. 
won't you, won't you fight for their goals? And so he was personally liberated by something he hated, and the war gave him a chance to end it. So I just don't want people to think, oh, he just wanted to win the war. That's it, you know. And I think historians have sort of charted this movement, this sort of greater this enlargement of soul and this greater sympathy for blacks and appreciation. I don't think Lincoln would have pushed for any colonization after the war if he had survived. Again, Dr. Humphreys uh, from Murray State University, thanks very much for joining us on Think Humanities. Thank you. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities and is a production of the University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences. This podcast was created at the Media Depot. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. SoundCloud.